You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alistair Reynolds is the author of Revelation Space, Diamond Dogs, and 12 other novels. His latest novels are Blue Remembered Earth and On the Steel Breeze and Doctor Who. Harvest of Time. Thank you for joining me, Al. (laughs) Good to be here, Rick. Let's start with Blue Remembered Earth. This is a beautifully evoked future history of Earth and a space opera kind of rolled into one. And as I was reading this book, it made me think of something that one thing you do very well is offer us a perspective of how insignificant we are in both time and space. Yes, I think that's my mission really, is to make you feel completely insignificant, to crush your ego and just leave you feeling like you have no no role to play whatsoever. Yeah, If I, if I can do that, then I'm a happy man. Really. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a bit of both. I mean, I think it, it, the, the best science fiction does give us a sense of our place in the universe. But it's also, it's, it's a double-edged sword because, you, yes, the universe is huge and we are tiny. But then we, are, we, may only be, we may be the only thinking beings in the universe. So in that sense, we're also precious. You know, at least we, have, we, should, we should damn well think that way anyway. We should, we should behave as if we're precious and, the, and the, as if our planet is the only, the only habitable planet because then we might treat it properly. Well, I think one of the things as I was reading this book, you would just give it, there are so many places in the book where you stop and kind of pull back and, and give us this sense of that our perspective on time is so brief, we're so focused on the moment, we're so focused on this tiny places we live in, but when you pull back, you are really good at dealing with geological time. Yeah, I, I like those bits where you can find a way to work in, into the story some sense of deep, deep history, deep time, and I'm always looking for those opportunities because I, I get a little you know, buzz when I can work that into the story. I suppose coming from a background as a professional astronomer, uh, you quickly become blasé to dealing with huge units of time and, and distance as well. But the idea of, you know, a million years is not a long time to an astronomer. If you're, if you're dealing in the life cycles of stars, which have, you know, lifetimes of tens of billions of years, then a million years starts to look like a relatively short span of time. Um, and I enjoy playing with that, that dichotomy, you know, between the, you know, the sort of the human view of time, you know, in which we feel that century is a long time compared with the sort of implacable <laughs> indifference of cosmic time. Well, I think uh, Blue Remembered Earth is a, also a great vision. You have a really kind of a, a offer us a, what I would call a diffident utopia that has some good and bad. So I'd like you to talk about developing that. And that's closely connected. You lead us from where we are now to where we are then, I think, very well. I wanted it. I wanted there to be a sort of clear, implicit roadmap that the reader could I mean, I didn't want it to be like the sort of Star Trek future. You have a kind of utopian 23rd century, but no clear sense of how we get from here to there, other than maybe there's a nuclear war and there's some sort of period of reconstruction. I wanted a sense of continuity, um, not, not to say that there won't be troubled times ahead and, and difficulties, but a sense that the, the, the sort of institutions of the present day are still sort of there in the future. 
So you still have United Nations, you still have, in some shape or form, you still have um, you know, World Health Organization, uh, you still have more or less you know, recognizable global geopolitics. And we, you know, we can see that the future doesn't seem to, it's, there's, you know, we've not had some great cosmic reset button pressed and suddenly we're in the shiny u u utopia. It's a society built on, on the sort of changes of the past. And I felt that was important, and I, and I, I didn't want it to be, um, you know, um, a, a naive, uh, simplistic utopia. I wanted it to be what I felt like, in a way, honest, an honest projection of where I think the world could be in the future if we just make, um, you know, the, the better choices. But there are some downsides to that to that society as well, which I think, um, in, in the first book, I, I sort of present them more or less um, as they are. The second book is a sort of begins to be a sort of critique of some of those aspects of the future utopia. You know, well, I, I thought one of the things, of course, that makes your books really strong are the great characters, and I love Jeffrey in the first book and this this family dynasty. So, talk about creating that. Where did you draw that from? I sat down with an idea in my head that turned out to be totally impractical, and the idea was that the three books would be constructed around an exponentially increasing time scale. So the first book was going to contain about a hundred years of implicit future history. The second book was going to be a thousand years of future history and the third book was going to be 10,000 years and that just turned out to be totally unworkable. And I didn't really hit that realization until I got stuck into the second book and I, and I found that in order to go from 100 to a thousand years I had to skip so many generations of this family that I really felt like I was almost not writing about the same family anymore. So I, I felt that I had to sort of drag it down to a more manageable time scale, get the number of generations between the characters down to something that I could get a handle on. Um, so right, right from the first book, I, I sort of started drawing these sort of family table, fam family histories, showing how all the characters in, were interconnected. But it became a lot simpler with the second book. There, you know, there were far fewer generations involved. And the... Um, the characters, the, the principal characters in the first book obviously still cast a shadow into the second book because they're only one or two generations on. And that's much the same story for the third book as well. I didn't have um, a clear sense of the characters when I went into the first book. They sort of just evolved as I started writing it. I had um, a sense that um, we have this older matriarchal figure, Eunice, who's dead at the start of the book, but the sort of p imprints of her life shape the plot. And to some extent, she's a shadow. She casts a shadow throughout the succeeding books as well. And then it's left to her grandchildren to get sucked up into an adventure that uh, takes them out of their ordinary lives and forces them to confront new horizons, I suppose. Well, uh, I really one of the things I like about Jeffrey, uh, who's our first, the first person we meet, we kind of intuit that this is going to be a space opera, but he's the absolute last guy you think is going to get drawn into a space opera and you do a great job of presenting and working with the elephants did you do a lot of research to on create this kind of futuristic study of our relationship with elephants it, it all began backwards as as it always does with me in that i had i had a character jeffrey i wanted him to get sucked out of his ordinary life but i didn't really have more than a vague idea that he might be working on some area of elephant studies because i thought well for plot purposes, the, the the story has to take place near Kilimanjaro, and I know there are elephant herds in that area, the Amboseli National Park, which I'd heard of. So I thought, yeah, he could be involved with elephants, but it was no more than it was going to be no more than a sort of like uh, 
a few lines in his back history, if you like. Um, we, the elephants were not going to get much screen time, but in fact, as it happened, um, the elephants ended up playing a much bigger part in the story. So I, I, with two things, one I've always quite liked elephants. So I felt I sort of had a rough, a rough sense of what, what, what they could and wouldn't do within the parameters of the story. I knew a little bit about elephant studies, but not enough to wing it. So I got a few books off the internet about elephant, um, you know, naturalists studying elephants, and read those, and just tried to pick up on some of the um, some of the big ideas. You know, how the herds are organised and and how they uh, how humans um, differentiate elephants, that sort of thing, and try to get that into Jeffrey's thinking. Um, and beyond that, I don't. I'm not naturally someone who goes in for a lot of um, a lot of uh, um, uh, research. I find it dull and, and uh, against the spirit of you know, for me, writing is an imaginative act, and too much research sort of, uh, feels like counter to that. So I, I like to do and just I like I like to have just enough to bluff convincingly <laughs> <laughs> well one of the things I, I think too this book has a really intense plot once once we get things going it's very intense and I'd like you to talk about how much of that plot you know like knew in advance and how much was shaped out of the book out of as you were writing I went into that one with very little sense of where the story was going I knew that um, I wanted to take the characters from um, the, the beginnings of the story, the, Jeffrey's on Earth and Sunday's on the moon, and I wanted them to get them out into the solar system having some sort of adventure, and I had this idea that I was going to take them to all the different planets and moons of the solar system, and we were going to see all sort of different facets of this future society. Well, it doesn't really work like that. That's not really, that's not really the book you get at the end of it. Um, so I suppose you could say I downscaled it a bit, but um, as I worked my way into the story, it was clear that there was going to be significant action on Mars, and I felt that I wanted some more action on the edge of the solar system. And I sort of evolved, I found my way into it organically, if you like. But there, there was a lot of head scratching along the way, which I vowed not to do for the second book. I felt I wanted to have a much clearer idea of the structure for the second book before I went into it. Well, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about, to backtrack and talk a little bit about this kind of ambivalent utopia, especially that exists on Earth. Because on one hand, there's no crime mm. and everybody is, you know, relatively safe. On the other hand, it's a state of constant, um, actually even internal surveillance. And yes. that's kind of troubling. It's troubling, but I saw it as not something that I could easily avoid and I you know we've all read a lot of science fiction from the 70s and 80s which kind of misses the point big time about um, information technology you know books that were being written well into the early 80s which didn't get the coming of the internet on any level the fact that we were all going to be connected very very quickly even though the omens were there if you were prepared to look for them. And I felt, well, you know, I, so I don't want to be making the same mistake about the coming sociological and technological changes of the near future that are happening in my, in my time. And there were a couple of things I was interested in. One, one, one of them was instantaneous real-time communication, the idea that you need never be out of touch with anyone. It seems to me we're already more or less at that point now in society. You know, if you really need to be, in, generally speaking, in the West, we can be in touch with anyone we need to at any point in time. You know, you have to go out into the sticks to get really isolated, which is, that's great 
for us, but if you're trying to write a story, it, it actually makes a lot of plot um, mechanisms no longer workable. You think of how many stories depend on character A not being able to get some vital piece of information to character B. Well, that just doesn't really work in 2014. I started writing this book in 2008, and um, I thought, you know, let's try and be true, particularly if we're setting the book even further in the future. Let's just take that as a given, that at no point will the characters ever be out of touch with each other, because that's just the way the world works. And it also struck me that, uh, particularly living in Britain, which is um, a society with a high level of, um, of surveillance, you know, we have more CCTV cameras in Britain per head of population than anywhere in the world, else in the world. I felt it likely that, we're, that we were heading towards a point where you, your whereabouts would never be unknown to any other protagonist. You know, if someone wants to know where you are, they'll always be able to tell. And that, to me, again, it's something that we're, we're sort of charging into. Whether, you know, whether we whether we understand the consequences or not, we're sort of heading towards that state anyway. You know, you you can be tracked by your mobile phone. You mm -hmm. know, and we know that. Yeah. And this is all before the NSA yeah, well, sort of stuff came out. You know, but it's 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 just it's been there and it's been in the public consciousness for years. But I wasn't really seeing it reflected in science fiction. So I thought I want to I want to write a, a a massively connected world where nothing ever gets lost. Um, because everything's networked down to the last pencil, down to the last paperclip. We, we, you, you know, theoretically, you know where everything is at any one time. So that immediately eliminates whole categories of crime. You know, theft becomes impossible in a world where everything is trackable. Mm -hmm. And we've already kind, we're kind of approaching that point with cars now because um, the tracking systems in cars make it difficult, make it pointless to steal a car. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. certainly at the high end, it's now becoming. Yeah, there's, there's little to be gained by, by stealing a car. Well, why not extend that to every single item in the world, you know, including animals <laughs> so, uh, and people? So I, I, I thought, you know, I can see this coming, but I'm not presenting it as um, a wholly wonderful thing. And the, the other thing that... Uh, but it also you make it, it's not terrible either. And that's it's what not I terrible. like it, is you have, a yeah. kind of, you have a kind of both sides. It's not, yeah. it's not like some horrible dystopia where everybody's under the eye of some evil overlord it's just the way it is which is kind of the way it is now well you know if you took someone from um say 1914 or 1814 and took them and brought them forward in time to the present day they there would probably be many things about our society that they think are really wonderful but there would be other things that absolutely horrify them and feel that they would regard as absolutely dystopian and 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 un, 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 unimaginably nightmarish you know but we just accept them they're just part of the texture of the world we live in we just mm -hmm. accept that, there are th that these things have come to pass and they're not they're not they're, they're just out there well, and I think noise <laughs> yeah I mean we live in a world where um, I mean you and I grew up living through decades where there was a very very real prospect of nuclear annihilation which we you know when you think about it that's an absolutely intolerable insane state of affairs to live under the idea that you might die in a nuclear <laughs> holocaust at any point in the day i mean who could imagine living in, in in such conditions but we we did and we just got on with our lives because that was just the background noise of the world now we live in a world where the climate's going bananas if we believe what the scientists say and i'm inclined to think that they're probably right but we just accept it yeah okay we're now living in you know global climate change isn't something that's going to happen uh, in the early decades of the 21st century. We're in the early decades of the 20th. We're getting it. It's happening. This is the future. 
but world goes on you know we still have lady gaga we still have um you know jobs and concerns and day-to-day ups and downs and you just get on with life and that i think is something central to the human condition that we we, we, we can adjust to almost anything and find it normal and humans are the most easily boiled frogs yeah in we, are, we are we are but we don't regard you know we by by some measures we probably we live in a world that would be regarded as simultaneously as utopian and dystopian to someone from the past you know we can get you you've come here you, you travel through the air in a in a in a metal flying machine how was that uh it was not as bad as it yeah. has been yeah <laughs> it was amazing you were yeah. traveling you were at yeah. 39000 feet on the other hand, you had to go through the indignity of a strip search or something on, yeah. to, in order to get in. So there, there were there were plus points and bad points, but that's the way of the world. You know, you have access. So you, you have this amazing thing called the internet now. All the information that, 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 that in the world is at your fingertips. And, and all the garbage. And all the garbage as well. <laughs> oh, yes. But it's, that's always the way. Yeah. I have this machine. I don't know if you saw it, but outside my house, I've got this machine that I can get in, and it can go up, up to 150 miles an hour. Yeah, and it and, weighs and about. It's uh, got music inside it as well, <laughs> and air conditioning. It's it's amazing. I, I can't wait to show you. <laughs> I've never seen such. <laughs> <laughs> what sorcery is this? Uh, well, now, <laughs> talk about one of the things I really liked about uh, Blue Remembered Earth and Steel Breeze is this character you referred to, uh, Eunice. Yes. And this must have been a lot of fun for you because she's kind of, in many ways, the main character through these first mm. two books. Yes. And yet, uh, she's not, I don't think we're giving any spoilers here, she's dead. Yes. So that uh, must have been fun for you. I can tell you are having a lot of fun uh, dealing with Eunice and creating her. So talk about uh, writing a books where one of your main characters is no longer actually alive. Well, I had no clear sense of where I was going with Eunice, I must admit, um, beyond the first book. Uh, it, I had an idea for a linking character that would thread through all three novels. And the precise nature of this linking character would not become apparent until some way into the trilogy. All that went by the book. It just, I just couldn't get it to work. Um, it's an idea that I might resurrect in the future. You know, it, it's not not an idea that I've completely discarded, but it certainly wasn't the right idea for this sequence of books. So I suppose, out of a sense of wanting some continuity between books one and two, I I thought, well, you know, I, there there are ways to bring Eunice back that are not um, disrespectful to the reader. I'm not saying no, she didn't really die. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing a sort of Reichenbach Falls with her. Uh, I think within the parameters of the story as we understand it in book two, it's, it, it, it's understood that there are ways that her personality, if you like, can, can continue to shape events in the second book. I, so, I, you know, I feel it, it became interesting, but it wasn't something that I, I, I didn't necessarily know that, that that was the direction the story was going to take when I started it. Remember, I was also thinking about this whole 10,000 years thing at the start. I'll be honest with you. Uh, um, the initial idea was that I was going to introduce a spacesuit in the first book that had belonged to Eunice. Then I think Jeffrey was going to Jeffrey or Sunday was going to get um, kind of inherit this spacesuit, and then the spacesuit would kind of get augmented and made souped up and given extra sort of autonomy. And then by the third book, the spacesuit would actually be a walking, talking character with a memory of previous events. And then we would find out that the whole thing was narrated by the spacesuit, <laughs> which. I didn't do. I didn't go down that road, you know. Uh -huh. So, but 
I, in if you've read any of my sort of short fiction over the last five years, I've kind of played with ideas of, you know, spacesuits kind of come up in in more than one thing. So the the idea was in my head, and it, it you know there may be more to explore that way, but that that wasn't the direction I went in in the end because I'm not someone who maps out a trilogy in exhaustive detail. I knew kind of where I wanted to go with the elephants once they once it was once it was clear that they were going to be a plot element. I knew where that where I was going to go with them, and I kind of felt that I wanted, I wanted the end of the trilogy to sort of mirror the beginning of it a little bit, but you know, I, I didn't have um, an overarching narrative in mind. You know, um, I really liked too the way you kind of cut back and forth between Sunday and Jeffrey. So tell us a little bit about creating the character of Sunday, and especially where she lives in at least the first book, the unscrutinized zone versus. Yes. The, the world controlled by the mechanism. That was a simple way for me to give the reader an insight into Jeffrey's world because Jeffrey is, when we first see him, he's walking around inside this um, the surveilled world governed by the mechanism where everything is tracked and tagged. No crime is possible because you're under a state of con almost constant surveillance. You're... you're um, even your, your your neural structure has been screened at birth to remove criminal tendencies. It's a very sanitized, safe utopia. Um, you, you know, it's good in some respects, but bad in others because uh, it perhaps it diminishes creativity. Who knows? But it's very hard to comment on that purely from Jeffrey's point of view because it's kind of the sea in which he swims. So I felt, you know, in order to get a perspective on this, we really need to move outside it. And I thought, well, what if his sister lives in a kind of anarchic commune where they've thrown out all these. Um, all, all these um, comfort nets and they, they've discarded them and they live you know rather by a different set of rules well if I if I can get Jeffrey to go and stay with Sunday then we can begin to get a sense of the differences between these two societies and one of the first things that happens to Jeffrey is he gets pickpocketed because he's kind of no he, go, he has no idea he's completely clueless about the idea of crime against property it's just never something he's had to deal with and he's rather shocked when someone actually takes takes his baseball cap or something like that. This plot of this book turns, at least begins to turn around with something found in a safe deposit box yes. and sending uh, Jeffrey to, to examine this are two characters who have really great plot arcs across the two books. So I'd like you to talk about creating these two characters because they're all actually quite a bit of fun. Well, I had them, the two, they were going to be uncles, I think, in the original family tree. And then I rejigged the sort of chronology and they became cousins, um, Hector and Lucas. And they are two members of the family. The whole the whole structure of the novels is focused around this family, the Akinya family. And they're um at, at at the heart of it, they're a family who've made a lot of money in the sort of next space age, in the in, in the sort of space age of the twenty first century, by getting involved in um entrepreneurialism and also some emerging technology. So they, they, they put a lot of money when everybody everybody else in the world was putting money into a space elevator the Akinyas put money into this ballistic catapult that shoots things up the side of Kilimanjaro. And it turned out to pay off. It turned out that they, they'd found a sort of economic niche that made them a lot of money. And then uh, Eunice, the, the founder of the family, is also a sort of redoubtable space explorer who um, has put a footprint all over the solar system and done lots of daring things. Well, the, f the family machine is making lots of money and Hector and Lucas are sort of um, very much in, in the vanguard of the corporate mindset they're just there to maximize the family's finances 
and they look look very um uh they're not at all impressed by the siblings sunday and jeffrey because sunday sunday's she's an artist living on the moon virtually penniless not making any money for the family and jeffrey's fiddling around with these elephants and, and you know and he's not doing anything for the family and both of them have could have in, inherited the family fortune but only only were they to take on the burden of responsibility of actually making more money as well, which they've turned away from. So they've, they've been at loggerheads with, the, with each other for, for years at the start of the book. But um, the whole business with Eunice dying and this safe deposit box kind of forces them to all, they all have to have a conversation. And then we find out that, the, that Hector and Lucas are sort of very, um, I wrote them the same to begin with. And I thought, well, um, they need to be differentiated in some way, so I'll keep I'll keep one of them the same, but I'll make the other one even worse, even more of a kind of corporate zombie. You know that he's he's actually had some surgery on his brain to remove his empathy, so that he can screw people more effectively in business deals. And if, but actually, he's got like an on-off switch, so he can be a really nice guy when he's not in the office, but as soon as he goes into office, he just turns off his empathy. And I'd read I've been reading these popular science articles about the prevalence of um, um, psychopaths in daily life you know that that uh, there are many sort of facets to being a psychopath and you, you can be if, you know if, if you're the, the ruthless CEO of a company who's you know you've, you've clawed your way to the top you've made sack millions of people but you've made loads of money you may well be a psychopath you know you, you're demonstrating all the classical signs of psychopathy and I thought well, that'd be quite handy wouldn't it to be a, you know if, if you weren't already a psychopath to be able to switch it on and off when you've got to make those really killer business deals, would be pretty good. So, uh, so I made one of them even worse, and I just kind of went through putting his, making his dialogue even more horribly corporate. Like everything he reads is from a kind of end of year manual, you know, end of year report. Uh, <laughs> but they, they were fun to play with, and yeah, and you say there's a kind of character arc. So one of them is um, redeemed a little bit by the end of the book. I you find out that he actually does have a little glimmer of humanity to him. <laughs> you know, you were talking earlier about. Uh, going different places in the solar system, but uh, I think this book is really uh, super effective, especially between the two of them. As you go out into the second one, as you know, in terms of the planetary romance aspect of going different places and visiting these places. So, talk about um, as a as you are going out into the solar system and taking your characters out to Mars and the moons of Mars and various places. Mm -hmm. um, was that all organic and? How much of that uh, did you like uh, look at uh, research and, and well I, I like to keep um, I have an interest in space science anyway mm -hmm. so on one level it's not really research it's just me doing my normal years reading of new scientist and scientific American just keeping up with what's going on out there and that that to me is just intrinsically interesting it's it's good to know what we know about the moons of Jupiter or Titan or the condi conditions on the surface of Mars. I mean, that, that is intrinsically interesting. But, uh, but like anyone, I, I, you know, I, I can't keep up with all of it all the time. And you find you kind of like, oh, actually, I'm not really sure what's going on there now. So you try and find an article or something that, that'll get you up to speed. Well, I wanted to get, um, get the characters into environments that were realistic 
based on what we know about current day science. And one of the things I felt at the time I was writing the book was that the moon has been underused in science fiction. I mean, in, in, in the days of Robert Heinlein, you know, uh, Destination Moon and the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, you know, the moon was somewhere where you went and had, had adventures, but it's not an awful lot of science fiction tends to get set on the moon these days because I think it's regarded as a bit too near and a bit too prosaic. And we know, you know, we know there's, there might be a possibility of life on Mars, but no one seriously thinks there would be life on the moon. So it's kind of boring and gray. But I thought, well, actually, somewhere the, there's a great science fiction book waiting to be written set totally on the moon, which really just gets, gets into what the moon is. You know, it's another planet, you know, and it just happens to be right next to us. But in all other respects, we should, if, if, if the moon was somewhere off in the solar system, we would call it another planet. We would not say that it's a moon because it's huge. So I thought, I want, to, I want a significant part of this book to be set on the moon. And I want, to, I want, I want a, a, the moon as I think it really would be in 200 years. So that's what we get, and I try to do the same thing with Mars. You know, I try to get really sort of do a do a decent, honest job with Mars. You know, as we read this book, one of the things that's really fun about it is it's just really bubbling with ideas and on every page. And a lot of this has to do with your ability to pull out uh, neologisms like quangle, <laughs> and and just little things that that kind of come up that suggest whole new technologies and whole new perceptions. And that that's just so much fun to read as in a it science is, fiction novel. I, I suppose I have a kind of um, insecurity complex that if I'm not putting in enough ideas, the book just won't feel, you know, it'll feel boring. Um, maybe maybe I feel I'm compensating for something else. Like there's a little, you know, like the characters aren't very good. Therefore, I'll stuff in more ideas. But whatever whatever the way it is, um, I always feel I need to put more ideas in. And I love it when an idea clicks and you feel like you've got some something that really feels like um, a plausible piece of future technology that, that doesn't feel contrived, but just feels like, yeah, that's really, that's really how it would be. Uh, particularly when it sort of relates to the plot in some way as well. I, I, I love those moments. Well, I think too, when you were talking about how you, you don't plan your books much and they grow organically, I think yeah. that's why um, they seem so immersive and real to us because there are parts, there are times when I'm reading your books and, and when I was reading Blue Remembered Earth and on The Steel Breeze, where there, the prose is really beautiful. There are these poetic moments. You have a really nice character touch, and you've got, in terms of the prose, what makes the prose fun is all the kind of ideas bubbling up all at once. And I think mm -hmm. that that in, in itself is what, you know, you get to the heart of what science fiction can be in terms of both science fiction as a genre, but also just science fiction as a form of literary, you know, work. Well, I, you know, I, I sit down and write when I try not to be hamstrung by self-imposed limitations as a writer. Like, I'm writing in a genre, fundamentally, mm -hmm. and there are, should we say, rules to genre fiction. But that doesn't mean you should cut yourself any slack, I think. As a writer, we should be setting oneself the, the highest possible goals in terms of characterization, prose, the handling of the themes. Um, and if if you're if you're setting settling for second best at any point, then you're not really you know, you're selling yourself short, I think. So I you know I, when I want I, 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 I never come close to this. But if I'm writing a sentence, I want it to be as good as a David Mitchell sentence. You know, I want it to just really sort of sing. And I, I don't get there, but I'm shooting for it. 
No, I and I, and I absolutely, <laughs> that's what gets me through the day. It's just constantly trying to imp up my game, you know. And in terms of the dialogue, I want it to be like M. John Harrison dialogue or something like that. Um, in terms of the the knottiness of the structure, I want I want the structure of the book to be really clever, like a like a Chris Priest novel or something like that. I don't I don't achieve these things, but they're they're goals, and I and I will not lowball it, you know. I'm, 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 I've got to shoot for the top. Well, I would disagree that you don't no, achieve it. That's I think very you kind do. of you, but <laughs> uh, no. But I, th I think you know we should all regard ourselves as playing. You know, we're we're all writers. We're all we're all producing literature. Some of us are producing literature for a, you know perhaps for a predominantly genre audience. Some for a should we say a more of a literary or academic audience. But we should just disregard all those assumptions and just write the best possible prose we can. Well, on the I, day. Yeah. I, I, as I say, I think that you know your stuff is readable, approachable. Anybody who's willing to read a book can open up Blue Remembered Earth and just enjoy the hell out of it because it's um, in the in the final analysis, it's a ripping yarn. <laughs> and we, and yeah. I, I wanted to also address that aspect of it in terms of building up the Führer in the, in the climax because it's got such a great ending. So talk right. a little bit about it. It seems like a one of the things that seems to me true is that sound seems like you're having fun when you're writing this stuff. I'm having, yeah, it's a combination, particularly when you get near the end, it's a combination of fun plus terror. <laughs> there are moments of fun, um, but there are also moments of screaming anxiety when you realize the, you know, the deadline's coming faster than you realize and you're not quite sure how to get from A to V. But I've got to say, um, you know, I know that some of my best writing has come out of moments of terror, where you just sort of go, ah! but suddenly, in desperation, you might just pull something out of the hat that you, you, that you wouldn't have done otherwise. So it's a good and bad thing. Uh, I think it's uh, just part and parcel of writing. Um, I've, um, I, I've, I've generally find endings difficult. I, I, I struggle with the timing of endings. Uh, and I, I don't I don't know that I'm there yet. Uh, I think so I, I think if you were going to be generous to me, you could say that there's an, a, a general average improvement in my endings um, from my first book to my to my present book. And there were one or two where I defend. I'd say the ending is no perfect, and I wouldn't change a word. Um, there are others where I'm sort of ambivalent about the ending. I think, oh, did I really get it right? I'd have to read the book again myself to know. And I, of course, I can't ever come to the book cold mm -hmm. as a as a sort of detached reader. So I, I'm. I'm not really in a position to judge whether they're effective. I know with, with Blue Remembered Earth, I wanted a sense that there's a climactic ending. Uh, the action proceeds to a relatively clearly defined point in the story um, when they're out in the outer solar system. But then we come back to Earth and there's a series of relatively short chapters where we tie up some of the uh, character arcs, if you like, and we find out a few extra things. But there's nothing terribly dramatic happens in any of those in any of those chapters. But, but it's satisfying. I, I wanted that feeling, yeah, the sense of homecoming, and then it's a sort of quiet conclusion. I suppose, um, you know, it's a bit like the last Lord of the Rings film where, you know, there's a long coda. Um, some people say it goes on a bit too long, but you do have to, f t to judge it when you've written a, you know, it's a, it's a long novel, Blue Remembered Earth, and I think it needs, uh, the ending needs to be judged appropriately. And of course, I've got the meta ending for the trilogy to, to, to think about as well. Right. I've been talking with Alistair Reynolds about his novel, Blue Remembered Earth. We'll be back for a conversation with Honest Deal Breeze in just a minute.
Thanks, Alistair. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.